You're listening to a SPIN podcast. We're interested in investigating the interconnections between secrecy, power, and ignorance that shape our world today. Hello, today we're welcoming Mike Bourne, who's a reader at Queen's University Belfast, and he's going to be giving his talk, Sensing Secrecy. On the 8th of August this year, there was an explosion at a military testing site in Russia. It was the so-called Skyfall incident, some believe to be a Russian test of a new nuclear-powered cruise missile. The explosion was detected by the international monitoring system of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization. Its signal was detected by three seismic stations and one infrasound station. That is, it was felt and heard by a nearly completed global technical infrastructure of sensation. After the explosion, several radiation monitoring stations in Russia stopped transmitting data to the international monitoring system. Radiation levels were picked up by other sensors in Norway. It's also reported that medical staff treating the victims of the explosion were made to sign non-disclosure agreements, though it's believed that several of the victims were killed by radiation poisoning. So here something secret was being enacted. Perhaps not all that successfully, not by hiding, but by mobilising and shutting off various forms of knowledge and non-knowledge that correspond to different forms of sensation. So this case, and many others like it, trouble certain common-sense notions of secrecy that relate to things being hidden from view, being made invisible. We know, for instance, that there are many forms of knowing and many forms of non-knowledge. Yet our metaphors and much work remains resolutely, if implicitly, ocular-centric. That is, it is premised on things coming to be known through vision, or at least understood through metaphors of revelation, transparency, and so forth. In earlier work, I've conducted research on how border controls are enacted in multiple forms of knowing. From the seemingly instinctive and experiential senses of border officials that they have when they're surveying packages or passengers, to computer-generated risk scores, sniffer dogs, and a variety of others. What's interesting about that, and about things like the International Monitoring System, is that secrecy and revelation, knowledge and non-knowledge, are particular orchestrations of multiple ways of knowing that rely upon multiple ways of sensing. The question then is how are these assembled and shifted into what we might think of as modes of disclosure? For me, thinking about things in terms of modes of disclosure does a number of different things. It allows us to ask questions first off in a post-humanist or new materialist vein, about how political practices of security and of secrecy are entanglements of human, non-human and worldly encounters. That helps us to rethink and rework notions of the sovereign subject being brought into the know of a separate world viewed objectively and masterfully. It also draws attention not only to actions, it's commonplace now for critical IR scholars to think in terms of verbs rather than nouns, securitizing, bordering and so forth, but also to think in terms of adverbs, of the modes and manners of secrecy and security. 
And more specifically, it allows recognition of how such worldly encounters are formed and formative of particular geopolitical and biopolitical practices. Engaging this through multiple senses allows us to engage how secrecy has shifted in its entanglements with security. That is, my proposition is that we miss something important when we see different senses as merely producing data for knowledge. Rather, different senses are different modes of feeling and encountering the world. What is particularly interesting is not simply the notion that there is a multiplicity of senses, though I do want to foreground that, but how their assemblage has shifted, how there are shifting orders of sensation. In this sense, I'm more interested in the ways in which modes of disclosure come to be and come to be ordered than I am in the veracity of what comes to be known. That is, secrets do more than hide or reveal. They serve as an orientation for a vast orchestration of sensation. They are perhaps a proposition rather than a revelation. To borrow from one of my favourite philosophers, Alfred North Whitehead, and his processual metaphysics, processual cosmology, he says, in the real world, it is more important that a proposition be interesting than that it be true. He says, the primary function of a proposition is to be relevant as a lure for feeling. Here I think there's a lot more going on than the evolution of nuclear detection systems, though I have been working on some of that. I think there's a wider sensory milieu at work that orients security knowing towards particularly material traces through multiple senses. So even the most mundane materials can disclose secrets, with or without human intentionality or betrayal or something like that. In 1960, the NSA established a committee on what it called compromising emanations. The unintentionally emitted signals, electromagnetic, radio frequency signals, acoustic and seismic signals, from electrical and mechanical equipment. In the 1970s, Los Alamos National Laboratory, a centre in the development of nuclear weapons, also developed what it called the science of signatures. It catalogued effluents that could disclose nuclear facilities. Such compromising emanations are a lure for trace detection, and trace detection now orients much of what we might think of as the techno-sensory milieu of security secrecy. Sniffer dogs hunt hidden drugs and explosives, and even data storage devices. Traces of nerve agents from assassinations and attacks transduce into diplomatic crises. Forensic analyses shift the mode of evidence in war crimes trials. The residues of drone strikes or the vapour trails of planes are mobilised to counter extrajudicial killing and torture. And new technologies monitor explosive traces and cocaine metabolites in city sewers. Across these examples, new modes of engagement shift the ontology of the secret towards traces and events. And certainly there's a quest for a perception of objectivity in these practices. It instantiates an operative logic that owes much to the development of forensic science. But increasingly, this forensic logic is not just about later investigation, but is integrated into real-time forms of situational awareness and extended in infrastructures of material surveillance. 
In the paper I'm basing this talk on, I don't really engage with killer robots, but it's worth noting that a lot of those sorts of situational awareness, forensic and uh, material surveillance practices combine also in the targeting systems of autonomous weapon systems. So there's a necropolitics to some of this as well, and this extends way beyond just secrecy. So what I want to do with all of these thoughts is to foreground some of the politics of this kind of techno-sensing and its relationship to secrecy. So first off, I borrow from Gilbert Simondon the concept of techno-geographic milieu, the idea that technologies are co-constitutive with an associated or geographic milieu to explore how multi-sensory orders are made possible through technological and political infrastructures. That is, they become entangled with and productive of geopolitical and biopolitical practices of security and secrecy. So I want to draw attention to how that's constituted through technologies in the midst of worldly flows, of what Simondon calls transductions. And here, nuclear sensing is a very helpful example not least because it's probably one of the longest-standing ways in which shifting sensory orders have been entangled with the geopolitics and biopolitics of security. Early radiation detectors themselves, based on laboratory instruments of measurement developed in the Manhattan Project, were then mobilised through sniffer planes that monitored the movement of radioactive dust across the globe in the wake of the Trinity test and the Hiroshima bomb. For a long time, it was sniffing the atmosphere of the world rather than vision that was the dominant sensory metaphor of nuclear detection. Before the international monitoring system was developed, the US developed what it called the US Atomic Energy Detection System, beginning in the late 1940s. This was highly reliant on radiation sensing in the atmosphere, but it also developed acoustic, underwater, sonic and other sensory capabilities. Indeed, many different senses combine when the first Soviet nuclear weapons test was detected in 1949. By the 1960s, most nuclear weapons testing moved underground after the Partial Test Ban Treaty. This shifted the mix of senses towards investment in what we might think of as touch, in seismology, dramatically changing what had previously been a rather fragmented and low-level science into the development of a global seismographic network of sensors. Then, by the 1970s, satellite technology allowed an even more global view. But this is a view and a vision based not on imaging, but on different energy signatures detected by satellites, by the Vela satellites. So what we have here is a shifting array of senses. We have this multiplicity of senses through the co-production of science and security politics. And the point for me is this multi-sensory order that emerges and shifts with geopolitical forces is not really understandable through uh, sort of mainstream notions of vision as distance and objective. Rather, the point for me is to borrow from Michel Serre's engagement with the senses, is to see the senses as knotted together and as deeply worldly encounters. So for Serre, he says, knowing things requires one first of all to place oneself between them, not in front in order to see them, but in the midst of their mixture, on the paths that unite them. 
And the development of these infrastructures, both the US system and the international monitoring system, create planetary-scale networks that are determined partly by geopolitics and partly by the signal structures and channels of the oceans and the atmosphere. So there's lots of interesting stuff that can be said about that, particularly in the history of the IMS. So there's an interesting entanglement, for instance, of scales and spaces that bring together sensor networks that operate globally, indeed see the planet itself as a signals transmission device or even a sensor itself. So we have a planetary scale of sensation used to detect microscopic materials or energy signatures, feeling vibrations through the ocean, registering radiation in the air and wind and so forth. This is all made possible by rather traditional forms of interstate negotiation, arms control treaties of various kinds, for instance, combined, though, with colonial histories and contemporary geopolitics that enable sensor stations of various types to be situated in remote forests and islands around the world. Yet those locations are necessitated by the noisiness of cities and shipping lanes and the natural pathways of ocean currents, among many other things. So a true case of a sensory assemblage combining natural forces and geopolitical forces. Similar things are at work in current national nuclear detection architectures and indeed global nuclear detection architectures that aren't just about detecting nuclear explosions from nuclear weapons tests, but are much more concerned about preventing nuclear terrorism and nuclear smuggling. Here, radiation sensors to detect the smell of radiation are given to allies and integrated into national systems. A different spatiality there emerges that connects human bodies, borders, and increasingly whole cities as hidden radiation sensors in airports and cargo screening systems attempt to form an alarm system. But here people are entangled in different ways with this infrastructure. Because in these alarm systems, the alarms go off all too often. Chemotherapy patients and cat litter set off radiation sensors many times a day. So what's going on here? What we have is multiple senses being ordered and integrated in particular spatial and political relations. So how do we register the political importance of that? One key question is who or what knows, who or what comes into the know through the revelation of a secret, of something hidden. And following Whitehead and Simondon and Serre and others, I want to argue that this is not very easily attributed to a particular individual who comes into the know or a particular social group or a particular state. Rather, what comes into the know is the sensory assemblage itself. It's certainly very hard to think about these sorts of orders of sensation as simply transparency um, revealing to a public. Certainly there are elements of that. The international monitoring system is deliberately constructed to give a uniform and universal coverage of its sensitivity, as well as systems that mean that all member states get exactly the same information at exactly the same time. But when we think about some of the other nuclear detection architectures and the IMS 
a lot rely on forms of artificial intelligence and automation. And they do this because of the noisiness of the world, because there is too much signal, too much radiation, too much noise. And so to tune in to what is a matter of concern is an extremely laborious task. And so a lot of that filtering, a lot of the initial decision on alarm is done automatically. Likewise, in city-scale networks, what we see is what something akin to what Hales calls cognitive assemblages, in which human and technical agencies and cognitions mingle and interact. So that what is coming to be known... Sorry. So that what it is for something to come to be known is rather different, because the entity that comes to know is an assemblage, a cognitive assemblage. A second and final political dimension to this is that these sorts of emergent entities are not necessarily publics in the traditional sense or the way that we're increasingly thinking about how publics come into being as particular groups of people. As I said, the IMS speaks of a deliberately constructed, almost cosmopolitan uniformity and democracy of disclosure. But other systems do not. What we're seeing, though, is people and publics being enacted differently. Not as citizens, but as objects and senses. Objects of detection through medical surveillance, the monitoring of borders and cities for radiation or biological and chemical signatures. And as sensors, as attention is increasingly growing to the use of more dispersed, ubiquitous sensing capabilities such as studies on the use of smartphones to capture seismic and radiation data, among other things, along with crowdsourcing and social media monitoring, that may supersede the need for the global infrastructures that I described earlier. So what we have then, I think, when we think both in terms of multiple senses and of techno-sensing, when we combine that and we get a sense of the shifting orders of sensation, the shifting patterns and modes of disclosure and how those are made politically and made political. That, I think, is something of a research agenda, I suppose, um, that allows us to think much more in terms of the modes and manners of disclosure and the ways in which political action and political infrastructures uh, emerge. You've been listening to a SPIN podcast. For more episodes, please check out our website, secrecyresearch.com, or find us on iTunes. 